Walking through, we've been launching into this idea of breaking barriers, and really what we've been doing is exploring the movement of Jesus after his earthly ministry, through the beginning stages of his uh, gathering, his people, his community, what they would came to be known as the church, which was literally called an ecclesia, that is a gathering of people who called on Jesus. And we've been walking through the opening segments of this book, this kind of chronicle of the movement of Jesus through his church in the book of Acts. And we've been exploring different themes, different things that kind of erupted. And I, I would like to, for us to consider something together in our moments here. I'd like us to consider that we may find ourselves, there are some times in our lives that are different than any other because I'm going to say this, because we might find ourselves in what I would call a providential encounter. One that is meant to alter everything else in our lives for the better. That there are moments in our lives and encounters in our lives, perhaps there are people who have been sent to us that are meant to elevate us. And there are other moments where we may not know it at in, in the moment, but we have been sent to them. And there's something of a providential sense. There's something larger than what we might recognize. And I would like to suggest to you that in each one of those, whether we have been sent somebody or we are being sent to somebody, really the key is whether or not we are willing to be responsive. And whether we are willing to be present in such encounters. Perhaps some of us, we may not know it, but we might be right there right now. Hmm. I, I think that decision to be present, to be responsive, I, I think that decision has the ability to change, truly, to change everything. Now, that's not, I don't consider that an overstatement. I, th I consider that an accurate one. Uh, to me, I have to say, this is so important because so much of my story, so much of my life is connected to different moments that I would, looking back, I wouldn't have said it at the moment, at the time, but looking back, I can look back into my history and I could say, yes, those now, I consider those providential moments that altered the trajectory of my life. I think of when I was 16 and I was being invited. I, I actually was inviting a coworker to a house party. And I remember working with her and my friends and I were throwing something and we said, you know, what are you doing Friday night? Why don't you come to our, come to this party we're throwing? And she kind of pulled a judo on me and said, hey, why don't, I can't go, but why don't you go to my youth group? And I remember thinking, no, I don't want to do that. I remember not having any religious experience whatsoever. I, my experience was going to church twice a year in Easter and in Christmas. I remember going there, sitting in, in these wooden pews and kneeling and standing and kneeling and standing. 
I remember walking through the front doors and seeing this bowl of water that different people put their finger in and they would do a sign on them. And I didn't understand the sign, so I wanted to taste the water and I tasted the water and my mom yelled at me and said, no, never do that again. Not here. You know, I remember having that degree of fear and kind of like, oh, this, I, I can't be comfortable here. That was my religious experience. And I remember at 16 walking into Blockbuster because I worked there. I know, some of you don't even know what that is. <laughs> but working with this peer of mine who came from a very different church experience, time and time and time again would always invite me, would you come, would you come, would you come? I, I know what you're doing, Lewis. I know that you got this, you got that. But won't you come, won't you come to my youth group? Won't you come to my youth group? And me, just every time, just coming up with a reason or an excuse, and I basically was just saying, no, I'm good, no, I'm good. But I liked her. We, we got along. She was normal, and that was nice. <laughs> and I remember one day, her boyfriend walking in with lunch and meeting him and getting to know him and realizing, hey, we have a lot in common. And I felt like, whoa, there, and finding out he goes to her church, he goes to her youth group, and thinking to myself, well, there are people like me in this gathering, this youth group, and him saying to me, which was surprising, he says, hey, what are you doing tonight? And I, I actually was honest, and I said, nothing. <laughs> he says, hey, why don't, you come to my, why don't you come with us? And I said, okay. And that was the first time I went. I would say, looking back, that was the opening of my experience with the consideration that there might be more to life. I remember not too far removed from that moment, that encounter, sitting in my guidance counselor's office, being told that there was no possible way for me to graduate from my high school career, being told that really what this looked like was the end of a chapter of failure, and the shock of it hitting me, truly hitting me for the first time, my guidance counselor stepping into that moment and saying, Louis, Louis, I want you to consider something that this, yes, is a failure, but I want you to consider this a life lesson. And if you consider it a life lesson that you will learn, then this will be so much more than just a failure. Looking back, I have to say, that became a providential encounter. I remember moments in my life where I was being instructed in martial arts and my instructor realized I was on the tipping point of either becoming somebody of an instructor or not and him realizing something about my, my way of thinking and speaking to me honestly and earnestly and challenging me to consider that pain, pain is a universal part of life that is part of growth. And challenging me to consider not limiting myself away from pain but to always lean into growth. Always lean into growth. In this community, I remember 20 years ago, walking in and being invited to be a part of our youth group here as a volunteer, as a teenager. And I remember the youth leader then saying to me several months later, hey, why don't you teach a lesson, a one of the Sunday school lessons, and me saying, no, why? Why me? I don't even know this guy, Elijah. And him saying, here's the lesson, and I'll walk with you through it, and I'll help you, and I think you should consider it. And I'm saying something that wasn't really said to me a whole lot. He said, hey, why don't you think about it? And then he added this phrase, and pray about it. And I remember thinking, huh, all right, I'll do that. I remember teaching that lesson. 
I remember experiencing something dynamic happening in that group with about 15 junior hires and myself and being intimidated by them more than they realized. And I remember shortly after that being asked, will you consider doing this a little bit more often? I remember our lead pastor talking to me earnestly not too far after that and asking me to consider a life trajectory I had never considered before in my life. Would you think about considering a vocation and surrendering your life to something far larger than just your life? It could be the greatest privilege of your life. Doesn't mean you have to work here. But will you think about your life differently? I have to say, I don't think I'm the only one who can look back in my past and recognize that there have been people sent into our lives that we didn't know it at the time, but those conversations and encounters ended up altering the trajectory of our lives. That they actually ended up elevating and increasing a sense of of power and strength in our lives. And for me, the reason I think it's important for us to consider the possibility that we are surrounded by providential encounters is because they are always hard to appreciate in the moment. Always. They're extremely difficult to recognize when they are unfolding right in front of us. Many times, they're usually only truly appreciated in the rearview mirror when we look back and we recognize, wait a minute, wait a minute, that wasn't just any casual encounter. Wait a minute, that wasn't just any casual friendship or conversation or relationship. That actually shifted my entire life path. Which means, if that's the case, What's truly important about the moments and the encounters we're surrounded by is whether or not we are willing to be open to the idea that there's far more going on than we realize. And that really, it's more a matter of saying, am I willing to step into these moments, these encounters, and am I willing to receive these encounters through a different lens? Because I think if we do that, if we recognize some people are sent to us and we are sent to some people, I think we will find ourselves appreciating the moments we were present for rather than regretting the ones we missed, which is so easy to do. And this is why I love the scriptures. Because I think there's something inherent in them. Whether we might uh, see them for what they truly are or not, there is something of an assumption made when you read the scriptures. The assumption is that this human experience isn't an accidental one. The assumption is that there is something far larger and more dynamic and more powerful, something of a purpose, something of a divine creation and beauty and artistic expression. There is something that is uniting and creating and unfolding. It's just a beautiful story of humanity. And each person gets the choice to participate or to step away from it. And I would love for us to explore this passage through the possibility that this isn't limited to 2,000 years ago, but this would be something of a template perhaps or something of an example of what it might look like for us to consider providential encounters here, today, in our city, in our community, in our generation.
you open up your handout, we can explore this together. And we are being shown this passage in the middle of Acts, Acts 8, verse 26, we're told, right from the get-go, as for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza, which uh, immediately were presented to this man named Philip. Philip was a man who was uh, one of the, we may or may not know this, he was one of the seven chosen leaders who were of high integrity and character. They were entrusted to be able to divide up the goods to people in need within the Jerusalem community. And they were, entr- they were, they were entrusted not to swindle and not to lie and not to line their own pockets, but to be truly be able to distribute to the needs of those in the community. And he ended up finding himself moving away from Jerusalem up northern into an area named Samaria, which was a group of people that were marginalized and really considered outcasts in anything that God was doing. And in the midst of this town, Samaria, because of what Jesus had done and because of what Jesus had told his disciples to do, he, they, he found himself in the midst of people being extraordinarily open to God. And there was something of a movement erupting right there in his midst in Samaria. And it was catalytic. It was breaking all kinds of barriers, by the way. And ethnic ones and racial ones and tensions were being bridged over because of Jesus. And in the middle of this, we're told, and we're not really, no qualifications given, no explanation. We're just asked to receive it for what it is. We're told that this angelic being, which is another way of saying, so scripture's way of saying a heavenly messenger. It's really what it is. We're told that this messenger from God told Philip, go south to the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. I want you to move southern. And so he started out. Philip immediately responded. He started out and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the, the, and this is a title, Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship. This is what we're told. And he was now returning. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet of Isaiah. And what we have to recognize here is, first of all, and this is what to me is rather remarkable. Philip isn't told why he needs to go south. He's just told to go to a destination, a location. I want you to go down a road. I want you to leave the vibrancy of what's going on. I want you to leave where you feel you might belong. I want you to leave where you're seeing just an enormous response to what's going on. I want you to go. I want you to go down this path. And he does. He goes. And he goes to a location. And here's the thing about it that to me is fascinating. It it truly is. See, he goes to a location, but not for the location's sake. And and why why is that important? Because we live in a location. One of, in my opinion, and in a popular opinion, one of the most beautiful locations in the world. We live in a city on a day like this, it's hard to beat that people from all over the world consider this location a destination. And Philip was sent to a location, but he wasn't sent. Here's the deal. See, there are people that come here for all kinds of reasons, but we have to understand this. God sent Philip for a person. And if we're going to consider that there is something providential going on in our city, we have to know this. We may have come for the city, God may have sent us for the people. People may have come for the city and the opportunity, but they may be sent to us for the people. Let's make no question about it. No mistaking, God's highest priority in any gathering of people are the people. The people. 
of that city, of that place. And this person in particular, we're told right off the bat, he was what? He was a treasurer of Ethiopia. He was a servant of the queen. This, this, this term, he was a eunuch, was a rather common practice that created a sense of loyalty. It stripped a person from any access to any other path of life, which would instill a high motivation to become a trustworthy and loyal, faithful servant for whatever task they were given. In this case, he was good with numbers. He was a businessman. He was a man who understood finance. And he wasn't just, just competent. He was extraordinarily trustworthy. Why? Because he found himself as the treasurer of the nation. This is no small thing, serving the queen. This is what we have to understand. He is uh, a person of influence, a person of means, a person of intellect, a person of competence. We would say one of the highest among his people. And though he may not have been Jewish, what do we know? He had a degree of faith and reverence in God. He had just made his way over to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship God, and he was now on his way back. And what is he doing? He is now, he's reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, which by the way, is no small thing. To have a manuscript or a book in that day was of an extraordinary advantage. To have literacy in that day was of an extraordinary advantage. What is Luke saying? This wasn't just anybody. This was a very intellectual, intelligent man of means and influence power investigating the things of God. And we're told in verse 29 that the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk alongside the carriage. And so he did. And Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, as they're making their way down the road, you can see it in your imagination. He's walking and he's hearing this man read these scriptures out loud. And he asks him, do you understand what you're reading? The man replied, how can I? Unless someone instructs me. And you get the sense that he discovered Philip would be able to instruct him. Which, by the way, is very telling. Because it would tell us that this Ethiopian was somebody who we would regard as what they would call a Gentile, somebody not allowed into the courts of the temple. And so he was able to have the flexibility to move, to trek all the way to Jerusalem, to do what? To spend time in the outer courts of where God was regarded to be. And even though he had faith, he was in many ways an outsider. And so he's reading, but he's, he's truly, earnestly interested. He longs to know, if, if God's real, I want to know him. And so Philip asks, do you understand? And he says, well, I can't, I'm not allowed an instructor. I'm not allowed a teacher. So how can I actually understand it? In their conversation, he says, you know what, Philip? It seems you do know. You know how to connect the dots. So why don't you come in and help me? Help me unpack this. It's a remarkable moment. And we're told in verse 32 that the passage of scripture he had been reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. He was reading a poetic stanza. One that in so many ways was difficult for the Ethiopian to truly understand. He was reading 
from Isaiah 53, which now we would regard as a poem of the suffering servant of God. And as he's reading this, and as Philip interacts with this passage with him, we're told in verse 34 that the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Which to me highlights the magnanimity of this man. That though he was intelligent, a man of high degree of competency, skill, and power, he was not too intimidated or proud to admit his ignorance. He was not, um, uh, in many ways, ashamed of the fact that he didn't understand. In fact, he took advantage of the moment. He recognized Philip for what he was. Perhaps you are being sent to me, and I will take advantage of it and humbly say, I don't understand it. Will you teach me? Will you connect the dots for me? Which, ignorance never means unintelligent. It's just a matter of recognizing, am I willing to receive instruction? This is, uh, this is a remarkable moment. The eunuch says, so who was it? I don't understand. Was the prophet talking about himself or was he talking about um, someone else? This passage, this passage that speaks of one who demonstrated um, quietness in the face of un- injustice. Unjust circumstances occurring to this person. And rather than pushing or fighting or trying to deny or escape from, it seems this stanza describes a person who is in so many ways surrendered to it, even though they didn't deserve it. They quietly stepped into the injustice. Though it wasn't theirs, they seemed to know they owned it. And so, he know, he's almost as if he's saying, I know this is important, but I don't get it. Philip, we're told, immediately says, beginning with this in verse 35, beginning with this same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus and what an interaction this must have been. An interaction in which we don't know exactly what Philip said to the eunuch, but what we do know is this. He spoke about the fact that this illustrated something remarkable. It's almost as if what we could say for certain is that what he said is essentially around the idea. This didn't speak about Isaiah. This spoke about a man named Jesus. And this injustice wasn't suffered years ago when this was first written. It was suffered months ago when Jesus, who was innocent, who didn't deserve any degree of punishment, found himself stepping into punishment. That was this deserving of all humanity, but he took it upon himself on the cross. And all of the evil and all of the wickedness and all the darkness was actually laid upon him on the cross. And you know what? He silently received it and death took a hold of him, but death could not hold him down. And he, three days later, came back and life prevailed. And in that life, he stepped back into the lives of those who believed in him. He never condemned them. He never judged them. You know what he did? He offered forgiveness and grace and love and life. That's who this is talking about. We know that. Why do we know that's the case? Because we're told that as this interaction is going on, they rode along in verse 36 and they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, 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 look. There's some water. Can I get baptized right now? You can, Philip answered. All you have to do is believe with all your heart. Eunuch said, I I do. I believe that Jesus Christ which is a title for king, is who you say he is. He's the son of God. 
sent to us. So he ordered the carriage to stop, and they went down into the water, and Philip baptized him, which, by the way, is an ancient ritual publicly stating what is privately true. That to immerse oneself into the waters and to come out in the name of Jesus is to declare a public allegiance to Jesus because it privately has already occurred. And you can see it. This moment, Philip baptizes the treasure to the queen of Ethiopia. And then as if Without, again, any qualification, we're told, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Meanwhile, Philip found himself further north at the town of Azotus, and he, what is he, he preached the good news there and in every town along the way until he came to Caesarea. We, we don't know much about this occurrence. Luke doesn't really explain things. For all we know, it's left to our imagination. He could have been teleported. Or he could have just ran out of the water. Philip, we know this. He was sent to have this conversation. And he was sent to have more conversations. And along the way, Philip decided he would be present for every single interaction. And along the way, he would speak of the one who sent him. And What's remarkable to me about this account is that we could say perhaps this was the first written account of somebody of African descent receiving the good news of Jesus recorded right here in the early beginnings of the movement of Jesus. I, there's so much here for us. I, I would love for us to consider not just the reality that there are, there are so many things going on beyond our recognition, but there are moments in our lives that we can say they are meant to be providential encounters. I want us to consider these. I want us to kind of unpack a couple things. One, I just want to put on there is for us to, to dwell with a little bit, is that we discover providential encounters when we accept God's invitation to partner with him when we start to recognize there is something more going on, there is something larger than our own individual existence, that our own private concerns aren't just our own private concerns, that there is someone who is far more concerned with them than we might realize, and that this life of ours was never meant to be lived disconnected from the one who gave us life, but that there is something of a partnership there's something of a collaboration we're meant to step into. And the invitation God always extends to us, whether we may know him or we may not know him, is an invitation to partner with him. Will we walk alongside with him? Will we be open to his direction? Will we be open to his overtures of grace? Will we be open to being sent by him? Will we be open to those sent to us? And every single one, listen, you know what we get? We get the opportunity. And it starts, you know what it is? It's a reorientation of our lives. It really is. I think so many times, <clears throat> this journey of faith, it encapsulates our prayer life through prayers such as, God, help me. God, strengthen me. God, bless me. God, lead me. God, give me guidance. God, give me courage. God, forgive me. And those, by the way, fantastic prayers. But when we start to consider 
that there is not one detail, not one, that is, he is not mindful of. And that there are moments in our lives that are unlike any others. You know what happens? We start to reconsider how we orient ourselves in the world around us. So we start to realize God is doing something all around me. God is doing something in my city, in my neighborhood, in my family, in my in my workplace. He's doing something in my friendships. He's doing something in the interactions around me and through me. He is up to something. And you know what happens? We start to, you know when we start to reorient ourselves? When we start to utter a different type of prayer. We start to add a different type of prayer to our lives. And we start to ask the question, Lord, where are you working around me? God, is there a purpose behind this conversation? that you want to be a part of? God, is there there a larger reason for this interaction that I'm not aware of? We start to get reoriented in terms of how we walk through our days. We start to recognize perhaps, perhaps this person has been sent to me. Perhaps I have been sent to them. When we start to accept that partnership, you know what happens? We start to recognize providential encounters are occurring to us far more than we realize. Because you know how else we start to recognize this? We start to recognize it when we start to own and share our story. When we own and share our story. In Philip's case, he needed to own and share his conviction of who he thought Jesus was. He didn't need to know everything. He, needed, he not, didn't need to understand everything. He just needed to own and share what he believed, who he knew, what he experienced. And I have to say, we live in a time today in our society, and I would say it's not just our city, it's nationally, where our society is one that is filled with high levels of anxiety, extraordinarily low levels of trust, And in a setting where anxiety is at an all-time high and trust seems to be at an all-time low, you know what becomes premium? Authenticity. That becomes what everyone longs for. We live in a data ubiquitous era. It's everywhere. We don't lack information. We don't lack access to information. We don't lack the ability to go investigate and research on our own. What we lack and what we long for are real, genuine, sincere relationships. Can I trust you is the most common question everyone asks within themselves when they talk to someone else. Am I trustworthy? Is this honest? Is this real? And here's the thing. The Ethiopian wasn't open to God because of a passage that spoke of a conquering hero. He was open to God because what was revealed to him was a passage of a suffering servant who suffered injustice, which tells us something. We are If we call on Jesus, we're never expected to be perfect. It's not about us being better, stronger, or greater. 
It's about us being honest about the fact that we aren't better and we aren't stronger and we aren't greater, but we're connected to the one who is better and who is stronger and who is greater. It's not about us not admitting our insecurities. It's about us recognizing, yes, I have insecurities, but I am held secure. It's not about us being perfect in every way. It's about us being honest about the fact that we say, you know what, I am imperfect and I am struggling. But in the midst of a struggle, I am held by the one who is perfect. By the one who never leaves me, nor forsakes me, never fails me. Who, when I fall down, he picks me up. When I feel discouraged, he gives me hope and strength. When I feel defeated, he is the one who gives me the ability to get up the next morning and continue to move forward. And we become honest about what? About our sufferings and our weaknesses and our frailties in the midst of the one who never abandons us, who never leaves us, who always loves us, who always restores us, who always strengthens us us. And when we are able to combine our story and own it and reconcile ourselves to it and to the one who gives us hope, you know what? We find ourselves in the midst of providential encounters with people who, whether they realize it or not, they long for that. They long for it. And when we step into those moments and when we receive those moments, we will discover one of the most beautiful truths about who Jesus is. We will discover and we will need to recognize that Jesus sends us to those he loves, not just those we like. I had to add not just those we like because I think we long to be sent to those only that we like. God, send me to that, to that person because I like him. But here's the thing about Jesus. See, Jesus is, this is what I personally love most about him. He's the one who loves us in spite of us. He's the one who restores us. He's the one who gives us strength, courage, passion, and value. True value. He's the one who, despite our brokenness and darkness, steps into our brokenness and darkness. Who never gets intimidated by it whose light can never be snuffed out by it, whose wholeness can never be overcome by it. He's the one. He's the one who loves us where we are and loves us so much he doesn't leave us where we are. And then he does something miraculous, truly miraculous. That in itself is amazing. But what is miraculous is he converts our heart and he expands it. And he expands the dimensions of our soul. And we start to become concerned with those around us. And he calls the best out of us. And he transforms us into people who were formerly bound by things and locked up by things and angered by things and offended by things and hurt by things. And he expands us and he calls us to take risks. And he starts to speak to us about the people that surround us. And he starts to infuse a deep appreciation for his grace in our lives. And he helps us recognize this grace was never meant to be hoarded. It was always meant to be given. And we who do not deserve it always meant to give it to those who do not deserve it. And he starts to do something. All of a sudden, you know what happens? We can never, we are ruined. We could never see another person the same again. It doesn't matter if we like them or we don't. We can never see them the same again because all of a sudden, every single person in the world has intrinsic value. 
And every single person in the world, whether they anger us or they make us happy, no matter where they come from, no matter what their beliefs are, no matter what their background is, no matter what their situation, every single person, if they have breath of life, they are made with a purpose that is beautiful and worth something. And he sends us to them. And he says to us, now do you see my heartbeat for humanity? See, Jesus is the one. It's not to say, by the way, that all of a sudden differences cease to exist. It's to say that Jesus bridges the differences. It's not to say that all of a sudden walls that have been propped up, all of a sudden they are destroyed. It's to say that he's the one who creates a doorway through the wall. It's not to say that animosity disappears. It's to say that the silent suffering servant who died for all of the animosity in the world died for it so that we, we could bridge it. This is Jesus. He did not simply come to reconcile humanity with God. He came to reconcile humanity with humanity. It's why Jesus said the highest expression of one's love for God is not simply an expression of love for God, but the highest expression is one's capacity to love another human being. It's why John years later would say, you cannot, you cannot say you love God and have animosity toward another person. That's impossible. To love God is to love those he made. To truly love them. To truly love them. This is why I'm convinced. He came to tell us, love your enemies, because he loved us when we were his enemies. And he is the one, the silent one. The silent death on the cross is what bridges all separation, all hostility, all animosity, removes overcomes all offense, all differences, all opinions, all views. Which is why, by the way, what Jesus does in the human heart is what no policy could ever do. No law can implement. No subjugation could ever force. Authentic, authentic capacity to recognize value in another human being. Only Jesus can do that. And so Jesus will send us to those he loves, not just those we like, because there's not one human being in the world Jesus doesn't love. There's not one. And so, I wonder, who are the people, the neighbors, the coworkers, the family members? Who are the encounters and the conversations that are so much more than we might think they are? What are those moments we might need to recognize? They've been sent to us and we've been sent to them. Ah, may we be open. May we be responsive. And may we recognize it's only possible because of Jesus. In a moment, we're going to receive our time of giving and our closing song, but I just want to pray, ask for God's blessing. God, thank you. I thank you, God, for the way that you... Um, don't limit yourself to words on a page of a manuscript that is thousands of years old, but that you step out of the letters and you step into the soul and the heart of real people. And you have 
conversations in the midst of the conversation. And you have a word in the midst of hearing your word. And you have an ability to be one who encounters us in the midst of all our encounters. I pray you would open our eyes to the people you have sent our way and to the people you are sending us to. And I pray for you to have your way in those moments. In Jesus' name, amen.